The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. To you this morning, Lord, we would come to you with our hands open, with our minds sharp and ready to listen, that we would come to you, God, willing to have you work among us. I pray that your spirit would be resting with us, that you would remove any callous, any hard-heartedness, word, which Jeremiah called a fire and a hammer, would make soft any rock in our heart. God, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your church. We thank you that you've made us a part of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen? Amen. So... We are going to start off, like I said, Revelation chapter 4 as our introduction. So I'm going to flip there. And I would like, as you follow along with me, to just be thinking about the worship scene that John the Revelator is describing here. So John gets this vision The angel of the Lord, Jesus is talking to him, describing to him about churches, and he gets to this point in chapter four, he says, after this, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what will take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne in heaven, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So for those, Revelation is my favorite book. This is John. He's getting this vision, and he's, he's saying, I was taken up in the spirit, and I saw heaven. I saw this throne standing there. And one sat there, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow, rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So this green rainbow is there. Around the throne, in the middle, were 24 other thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Are you picturing this in your mind? Like, there's a throne, there's 24 other thrones, there's kings, there's these elders that have the crowns on their head, there's lightning flashing, and thunder is booming, And then there's seven torches of fire. Can you picture that in your mind? These are the seven spirits of God, which are before the throne. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This worship scene Ezekiel saw back in the Old Testament. 
John's scene in, in the New Testament. This is the eternal worship scene that is before God Almighty in heaven. Are you prepared? Were you prepared this morning to come to that worship scene? Who shall stand on your holy hill is the question we're presented with this morning. So I want you to put a colored pencil in Revelation chapter four here because we're gonna come back. Colored pencil, bookmark, finger, the ribbon on your Bible, whatever it is, just hold that place. We'll come back to it. But please go with me now to our text, Psalm 15. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? That is the worship scene that we are entering into as a church. That is the worship scene that David here is saying, who can go there? Who can present themselves in that space? Who can come to church to that worship scene? So that's the question, verse one, that we really get laid out before us. Who shall dwell? Psalm 15, we got to remember, is a psalm for Israel. It is Israel's, the psalms are Israel's hymn book. These are songs that they would go, hey, I know that psalm, even by the first few words. And I'll start this by saying, church, we do the same thing. If I were to go, amazing grace, what's the next words? Sweet the sound, right. Israel would do the same thing. They would come to this and they would say, oh Lord, who shall sojourn? And then everybody would go, in your tent. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Like they would just, it would be a hymn to them that they would go, I know this. I know this. And we can do it again. I think a, uh, a song that Pillar Bible Fellowship has that's really a hymn for us is, bless the Lord. Right, like that's a Pillar Bible Fellowship hymn. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. We sing it, we know it. And when we sing that as a church, like everybody just joins in. We know that. The Psalms for Israel were that way. So they would come to this Psalm and they would go with memorized verses. Oh Lord, who shall dwell on your sojourn on your, <laughs> who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? But they would also have memorized the previous chapter. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I kind of thought about our worship sets and I went, how many songs in our worship sets do we have that God the fool says in his heart? Like we don't sing about the fool, but Israel was like, the fool says in his heart, there is no God and they would sing it. And then the very next song they would think of is, oh God, oh Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? So as we come to this psalm, there is a direct opposition placed to Psalm 14 that we went through last week. And we get to come into this one and go, who is this person that can do this? Psalm 15 describes an ideal worshiper. Someone who is like, if you were to look around the world and you could find one person and you're like, man, that guy can go to church. Like, he's ready. Um, it's a comprehensive overview of an ideal worshiper. And as we go through this today, we're going to go through it once, looking at it just in, we're going to look at it again and who that person is, and then we're going to apply it at the end. So we're going to kind of go through it three times. Thankfully, it's the shortest book that we're, or the shortest chapter we're going through in this set of Psalms. So even though I'm saying we're going through it three times, it's still only 15 verses. And I give you permission at 45 minutes to go, cut it, like wrap it up. It's okay. I'm all right. And I'm going for 30 minutes, right? Um, so let's look here again. Psalm 15. Who, oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And verse two, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So this is the first phrase. Who can do this? Who can enter that worship scene, that eternal worship scene where the crowns are getting thrown before God Almighty? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So this is someone whose walk 
doesn't have, a, nobody can look at him and go, that guy is crooked. Like he just walks in these sly ways or he slithers around everywhere he goes. The second phrase, and speaks the truth in his heart. This is the heart of the worshiper. What's dwelling inside him is the word of God. It's, it's permeating them. And we're told that out of the mouth or out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and that's what comes next. Verse three, the first line, who does not slander with his tongue. So this ideal worshiper is not walking and slithering around crookedly. His heart is full of God's word, and his mouth portrays that. The way he speaks to people portrays that. He does no evil to his neighbor. As we think of a person, as we think of someone idealistically who walks right, has the right heart, has the pure words, the way they treat their neighbor would be ideal. Like, how would you want your neighbor to treat you? What would, if you could be the best neighbor to someone, is that cookies every day? Is that not taking your dogs, um, you know, you're scooping the yard? Where do you throw that? Do you throw it in your neighbor's yard so your dog learns to go to the neighbor's yard? Like, what's the ideal neighbor? It's the person, it's the person whose actions are no evil towards their neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This is someone whose character, even to those that are closest to him, friends. These other ones, these are all people that can just be sideliners, someone walking down the street, you could observe it. This one now, neighbor gets a little closer to home, now a friend. What's the character of this person to a friend? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, verse four. Now we get to the respect of the worshiper, what does this ideal person hold honorable, hold desirable? But who honors those who fear the Lord? Now the honor that is given from this ideal worshiper, someone who fears the Lord, that person goes, I love that person. I can spend time with that person. That person honors the Lord. I'm going to honor them. They fear the Lord. I'm going to honor them. Not the vile person, not the person who's walking crookedly, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is the attitude of a worshiper. This perfect, idealistic worshiper who can come to church on a Sunday morning and say, I can stand before God Almighty in the eternal worship scene of heaven, this person will swear to his own hurt and not change his mind. I don't know if anybody's ever been told what you do not say when you get in a car accident. Has anybody ever heard? When you get in a car accident, the first words that, you, that come out of your mouth, you're told this by your insurance company. Never, ever say, I'm sorry. That's what you're told. Never, ever say when you get in a car accident. And I'm not, I'm not validating this. <laughs> I'm going to just make that clear. I'm not validating this. <laughs> yeah, write it down. Um, this is what you're told. If you get in a car accident, you're told, never ever say, I'm sorry, because then you are implying the guilt was yours. Insurance agencies don't want you to imply the guilt was yours. They want to investigate it. The person who gets in the car accident would come out and go, oh my, like, are you okay? And if they were at fault, be like, I'm so sorry, I didn't see you or whatnot. This person would then go, I'm sorry, even if the fault was the other person's. Like, I'm going to take the blame of this because the situation just needs the fall guy. That's the person that this is describing. Someone who would swear to his own hurt and not change his mind. The person who does not put out his money at interest. So how do you use your finances? And does not take a bribe against the innocent. This speaks of the justice of a worshiper. He who does these things shall never be moved. This, this idealistic worshiper is so steadfast in his life that he can then be said this person will never be moved. This person will stand before God Almighty's worship service. 
I'm going to bring up a couple of different movies, hopefully. So my kids have not watched The Lord of the Rings yet. So if I always use a Lord of the Rings quote, they don't get it yet. So we're going to start with The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember in The Two Towers, there is um, the writers go to Rohan, right? To the, the kingdom that has the little hill and all the, the castles right on top and the cities around it, right? And they get there. And the flag rips off the castle as they're walking into the palace. And they're like, so, and it, it's just drawn to be like something's not right. And they walk in and everybody's eyeballing Gandalf and help me out here, Legolas and Gimli and Aragon, right? They're all walking in and everybody's like eyeballing them and ready to fight them. And they do get into this scuffle and the king there is sitting on his throne and he just looks decrepit, Right? Do you guys, do, do the adults remember this scene? Maybe you've read it. Maybe you watched the movie. Okay, so the, the king is sitting there and he's just decrepit looking. And right in his ear is Grima Wormtongue. And just his name should make you go, something's wrong with this guy. Like, he just looks evil and he's whispering in the king's ear. That whole scene is put in, that whole part of the book is put in there because it's not right when someone who's twisted and wicked and slithering around in their ways and is speaking ill of the good guys and is trying to connive his way into situations, it's not right when that person sits on the holy hill. That's the type of person that you would look at and see verse, or chapter 14 for. That person would be like, what is he doing there? That guy does not belong on the holy hill. That person does not belong in the worship scene of heaven. For kids, like my kids, think of the Green Ember series. Who has read the Green Ember series in this? Yeah, Mary's got it. All right, Mike has got it. Our kids have heard it. The Green Ember series is called Rabbits with Swords. And it's a, it's a wonderful book, kind of parallels the Lord of the Rings. In the Green Ember series, there is a young king, and I had to ask my kids their names, named Lord Kylan, and he's this rabbit. He's a tall rabbit. He's a good-looking rabbit by rabbit standards. He's got uh, the ability to fight. He's big in comparison to the main character and in comparison to Pickett, who's this small little wiry guy. Um, Lord Kylan is this big, bulky rabbit, Um, and he's got got his grime of worm tongue, but his name is, does anybody remember it? Tamith Seer, right? He's He's a prophet, so he's a seer. And this guy is just like Grima, only in a different book. He's the one that's like slithering up next to the king and whispering in his ear and trying to corrupt the king. And what he ends up doing through the story, um, I don't want to ruin it too far, but he ends up poisoning the king, right? He ends up poisoning the one that he is there to support. The whole point of him is to be able to say, that's not right. So when we look, here is this ideal worshiper. The direct opposite of that is Grima Wormtongue or Tamith Seer. That is what we're in comparison to chapter 14 versus chapter 15. This person that we desire to see is steadfast. He's perfect. He's idealistic. Now, by a show of hands, how many of us in here are that person? Sweet. Nobody raised your hands. We're not that person, right? We look at this and we go, God, can I go to church today? Like, I know who I am. I know how crooked I can tend to walk. I know that my heart, like I entertain these other thoughts. I know that my mouth sometimes slip out things I don't mean to say. My actions, I try to control them. My character, I'm trying to improve it. The respect of the people I respect tend to, can be not the most respectable. The vile person, as I read this, I look and I go, God, the vile person to be despised is my flesh. Like, as I look at around me, I go, man, that person's messed up, but that person's not half as messed up as I know the vileness of my sinful flesh is. I despise it. So often, that's the attitude 
of this worshiper. That's the attitude as I look at this and I go, God, who, who can stand? I, I can't stand. We can't stand on the holy hill. So I'm going to flip. Uh, you don't have to flip there. I'm going to just go back to ch- uh, Exodus chapter 40 really quick. This is, if we were to think of like one guy in the Bible that was um, able to stand before God, I would, you know, starting in Genesis, we'd go, hmm. Adam, he messed up. Um, Joseph, he did really good. But then we get to Moses. And Moses, God was like, had his hand on him. And he was shining on him. And his face was for him. And Moses got to go up onto Mount Zion and got to spend time with, with God on Mount Zion. But in Exodus chapter 40, they finish erecting the tabernacle. They get it built. Everything's perfect. Moses, in uh, verse 16, then Moses did all that the Lord commanded him. And then in verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, who is the representative of the law, it says Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, well, I'm going to stop there. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, who got to spend so much time with God that he got to the point where he's like, I just want to see you. And God said, I'm going to hide you in the rock. I'm going to cover you and you can see my afterglory. Like, that's all I'm going to let you. Moses would be the one that we would go, whoa, yeah, like Moses, he falls short. He can't even enter into this worship scene in heaven. So if you would, take that little colored pencil and flip back to Revelation chapter 5. So we're going to find out, and I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody's already gotten there, who can stand on that holy hill? Who can dwell there? So at the end of chapter 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created Then I saw in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne a scroll. We're not going to get into what the scroll is. Written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly as no one was found or to look into it. So as we look at this ideal worshiper, we can go like, who is worthy? Think of, you could even say like, like that scroll, like it's held out there and nobody in heaven and on earth are able to take it from God Almighty. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken that scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll to opens its seals for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, this is John saying again, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. (laughs) Who is worthy? It's the lamb who was slain. But how does the elder call him? I just want to, I want to pull this out. The elder says, behold, there is one worthy. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. And John is standing there listening to this elder, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and it's a lamb slain. This is where we are, church, as a church. We, we worship, we know, we can theologically know Jesus has conquered. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In this time on earth, as we dwell on earth, we're following the lamb slain. That's how we are. I see these t-shirts online that say lions, not sheep. And it's, a, it's an intent uh, to like bolster up the church to be like, yeah, we're following the lion. But the reality is, is, no, we're actually still sheep and we're following the one that was slain. That's where we are. So as we look at this, who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. Moses was not worthy. I am not worthy. We're not worthy. Jesus alone is worthy. So we're gonna walk through this one more time. We're going to look at these, and we're going to just pick out simply one verse, one instance where Jesus fulfills Psalm 15. So if you would look with me at verse 2, and I got to flip back there to Psalm 15. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, Jesus can. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. You don't have to turn there, but John 19, 5 and 6, Jesus is put on trial. Pilate is sitting there talking to him. He works through, he's like back and forth, who are you, what are you? His wife comes, says, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. And Pilate presents him flogged before the people and he says, I find no fault with this man. There's no reason to kill him. Pilate declared the walk of Jesus was perfect. If you would like, you can turn to John 5, 39. This goes to the heart of the worshiper. So the heart of Jesus, as we read it, speak, this perfect worshiper speaks truth in his heart. John chapter five, verse 39. And I'm gonna start a few verses earlier. Jesus says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, these bear witness about me and the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you, have not, you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, you could read the Bible every day. Without it being Jesus that you're seeking, it's worthless. You can read the Bible and you could know, you could have this entire thing on the tip of your tongue, but if it's not Jesus that you're following, if it's not Jesus that you're seeking, your heart is missing it. You could have every psalm come back into your mind and if it's not Jesus, you're missing it. The heart of the worshiper is the heart of the one that is seeking after Jesus, but Jesus is the very word of God. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That is Jesus. So looking at the next one, the mouth of the worshiper. He does not slander with his tongue. If you wanted to, you could go to Luke twenty twenty one. but it is when they're trying to trap Jesus in his words, they send this spy to him and they say, this spy tries to butter him up, but he's saying the truth. He says, we know that you don't care about what other people think, but that you speak the truth of God. Now that was a true statement that he was trying to trick Jesus with. But Jesus is the one whose mouth spoke the truth. His actions were perfect. When he was brought the woman caught in adultery, he stood there and he 
rightfully was the only one that could condemn that woman to death. He didn't because he looked around at everybody else and says, him without sin, cast the first stone. He acted in a way that was perfect to that sinful woman. He does not take up a reproach against his friend, this character of the worshiper. When Judas came to him, Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, Judas comes to him to betray him to the mob and he comes up and he kisses him. And Jesus turns and looks at Judas and says, friend, do what you came to do. Even with his friend, the one who had walked with him for years, Jesus acted perfectly in character in being betrayed by a friend with a kiss. The respect of a worshiper. Jesus, in John chapter 2, said, I know what's in the heart of all men, and he did not entrust himself to any, but he entrusted himself to the one who is faithful. He entrusted himself continually to God even to the point that he was in the garden just praying and asking God, like, if there's any other way that our plan can be fulfilled, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He entrusted himself to God Almighty. He did not give the respect to sinful people. He honored a centurion when that centurion came and said, I don't deserve for you to come under my house, my roof, Speak the word, and my servant will be made well. Jesus said, wow, I've not found such faith in all of Israel. He gave honor to a man who went, I understand how this works. You speak the truth, and my servant will be well. That's faith in action right there. He honored that man. Jesus' attitude to swear to his own hurt and does not change these last few, I sat there and I'm like, man, I know all these other ones just kind of popped into my head as I was studying and preparing. I got to this one. I'm like, God, when did you swear to your own hurt and didn't change? And it was like, the cross, <laughs> like he, he did that for all of us. Like that was Jesus taking on all of our sin, all of our car accident mess that we deserve to like, he did it all for us. He took on all of our sin and didn't change. That one came really blatantly. Then the finances of the worshiper. Like, okay, he didn't give out his, when did Jesus not give out his money to a bribe? And it was, as I was sitting there going, God, when would you do this? It was, Jesus never had money. (laughs) He never had money to give out as a bribe. Somebody came to him and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have dens. I I don't even have a rock to lay my head on. Like, Jesus was poor. And uh, I love the Vodi Bakum. He goes, we were so poor, we couldn't even afford the O and the R. It was just poor. Like, it was that poor. Jesus was poor. He relied on people when he needed a denarius. He needed just like 100 bucks to make an example. He's like, can someone please hand me a coin? Like, can I just see a coin? He didn't carry the money on him. He was poor. So he couldn't lend out his money to, a, to somebody else at interest. But then the one that really I, I sat on for a while is in verse 5, the second statement there. Um, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. And I looked at that one and I'm going, man, God, how, how do you fulfill this one? How did you fulfill this one? You didn't take a bribe against the innocent. And... When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, the devil came to him and and tempted his flesh. He said, I know you're hungry. Like, you haven't eaten for 40 days. Command these stones to be made into bread. And Jesus, no, I'm not going to do that. And he, he fought the devil and he quoted scripture. Then the devil brought to him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. He said, let me, the devil said, I'm going to give you all of this. That's a bribe. The devil's saying, I'm going to give you all of this if you would bow down and worship me. That was a bribe where Jesus is saying, where it was brought to Jesus in an attempt to make him take a bribe. And he said, be gone from me for you shall worship the Lord your God only and him only shall you serve. Jesus 
fought the bribe of the devil who was rightfully able to say, I'm going to give you all of this because I stole it from Adam. I'll give it back to you. You just lay down and worship me. Jesus didn't do it. That is what led to the steadfastness of our Christ. Jesus fulfills Psalm 15. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Christ Jesus, the Lord only can fulfill this perfectly. So where does that lead us? This is, this is the application. Where does that leave us? We have this like theological mountain of Christ fulfills the scripture, right? And we've got this understanding that we don't make it. And we look at all of this and we say, what what does this benefit us other than like the wonder of Christ, you did this? And, and it works this way. If you were to go after service today down to Twin Peaks and buy a bacon cheeseburger, right? You've got a cheeseburger in your hands. Now, at that moment, when you have the cheeseburger in your hands, it is its own self, a cheeseburger. But the moment that you eat that cheeseburger and you bring it into your body, that cheeseburger is no longer a cheeseburger. That cheeseburger is being made into your image. You are taking that cheeseburger into yourself, and it is becoming your image. Not, you can go really far with this and have some really fun things. Like, I was going to use Twinkie, and I was like, ah, I won't use Twinkie. Um, if you really, like, if cheeseburgers just kind of offend you, use spinach. Like, you can, you're going to take a little thing of spinach, and that spinach is being made into your image. You are breaking it into and utilizing that cheeseburger for yourself. We, we as Christians, if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We're being made into the image of Christ. So in the moment that we say, Lord Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, I'm going to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. In that moment, that little cheeseburger that was us is getting made into the image of Christ. We are no longer a cheeseburger, as Jimmy Buffett would say, a cheeseburger in paradise. We're a cheeseburger in Christ. Like, that's what we are. We are being made into the image of Christ. Sorry, love. So as we take this, we go, okay, I can't even stand in church. I can't come to Psalm 15 and say, I can dwell on the holy hill. But we can come as a church and say, we stand in Christ. We stand in Christ, and he fulfills this. Therefore, I'm going to come to church with my stuff. I'm going to come to church, and I'm going to try. I'm going to try to have a heart that just takes in the word of God every day and lives out the word of God, and that's the word of God mold and shape me so that my speech is seasoned with salt. I'm going to try to be that one whose character can look at a friend when they smack me across the face and say, I still love you. I'm going to try to be the one who will honor those who honor the Lord. I'm going to try to be the one who uses finances, but in the end, we still fail. We still falter. That flesh in us still rises up. The difference between before and coming to church before being in Christ and coming to church after being in Christ is that it is done in faith. So you could say the difference between a works-based righteousness and an imputed righteousness, Jesus' righteousness that's given to us, the difference between works and the imputed righteousness is whether or not it's done in faith. We are told that all of our good works-based righteousness acts, all the good that we do in and of ourselves is like filthy rags. And the full extent of this is like disgusting, but think of it as a bio waste. This is garbage that doesn't even, like can't even just go in the regular garbage. Our works-based righteousness is garbage that just can't get thrown away in the standard trash. It's got to go in a special trash can to get discarded specially. Our works-based righteousness is so disgusting. But in faith, when we work under the imputed righteousness of Christ, our acts are glorious. 
The eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. It's in him we live. And as we place our faith in Jesus day in and day out, God is looking at us saying, I want to make you strong. I want to make you stand. I want to make you in that moment of conversation when it's just, it's awkward and you go, this, is, this conversation is terrible. I want to interject. He's wanting to say, I'm going to make you strong in that moment to speak out boldly. I want to help you. I want to help you forget what lies behind all of your sinful baggage of the past. I want you to strain forward to what lies ahead and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are being made in a work from faith. It comes from faith and it is to faith so that the righteous can live by faith. That's what we're seeking for. That's what we're pursuing after. We want to pursue Christ in faith. Psalm 15 is there to set us up going, we're not wanting to be the fool of Psalm 14. We are wanting to stand in Christ, the fulfillment of Psalm 15, to propel us on to pursue Christ fully in this life, from faith to faith. Well, I don't know how much faith I have. Please turn to Luke 18, really quickly. Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable. Luke 18 starting in verse nine. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. That guy, he kind of sounds like what we read in Psalm 15 as far as his, what he looks like. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We live this life by faith. We live this life looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He finished Psalm 15 for us. We stand in him, and then we are in this process of sanctification. But where do we hold our faith how do we hold our faith in Christ? J.I. Packer uh, passed away last year, was glorified last year. He was asked in an interview by John Piper. I listened to this interview, and Piper and him were uh, guys who worked on the ESV, the translation of the ESV. These guys worked well together. They theological giants. Piper goes um, to J.I. Packer. He says, how... Why? Why do you think God is using churches that seem to be theologically off base, yet people are getting saved in them? Like, you look at some of these churches, and he was specifically referencing some of more of the extreme charismatic churches. He was saying, why do you think God is using these churches in, like, Africa, um, where it's evident that they're preaching the name of Christ, but there's just, there's so much mess with it. And Packer said, God uses the needle of faith in a haystack of mess. God uses the needle of faith in a haystack of mess. Where he would say, Packer is saying in that, even though there's all this other mess, there is genuine faith of the gospel and of Christ Jesus in this movement that's taking place currently. He's saying there is a, there's a needle of faith. It's so small. It's so minuscule, but it's true, genuine faith. We are to go from faith 
to faith. We are to live in faith. And so my question to you this morning, in your walk, in your sanctification with Christ, in your time, when you go, I'm, I'm, I'm here, Jesus, where's my faith? If that faith is, is in the first stages of belief, where you're wrestling and saying, do I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? It doesn't take a huge faith. It takes a needle in the haystack of the mess of our lives to say, I'm going to bend my knees and I'm going to bow my life to the Lord of creation. I'm going to say, Jesus, you are Lord. I'm going to confess you. I'm going to believe in my heart. Then take that needle of faith, if it's there, the smallest amount of faith, Maybe it's in your finances where you're going, God, can I really trust you with my money? Can I really say, here, I'm going to give you 10%, 20%. I'm going to keep increasing the amount I give to you every, every paycheck. By every year, I'm going to just up at one more percent. Can I really trust God with my finances? It just takes a little bit of faith. It just takes that needle of faith. Is it resting in him? Like you're a duck where you're just, everything looks calm, cool, and collected on top, but underneath you're just spinning your, wheel, your little flippers going, God, I, I just can't rest. I just can't stop. I just, do I have to rest in Christ that he's going he's gonna to hold and cover my children as they go out from the house? He's going to cover this situation at work that I don't know how it's going to work out. He's going to be the one that takes on this moment, uh, monumental issue with a, a water check on a dam. Like how, God, am I just spinning or am I gonna just rest in you? Maybe there's something this morning where God would say there's a particular sin that you go, if I give this up, I don't know how it's gonna work out. But I know that this one thing, this one thing, God, you're pressing me and I just haven't surrendered that in faith to you. I don't know how it works out. You don't need to know how it works out. You just need to go, God, I'm going to lay down this before you. I'm going to lay this before you, and I'm going to step out in faith. Maybe it's in witnessing. Maybe it's in going, I know God's called me to greater prayer. I'm going to pray in faith, in Bible reading. Whatever it is in your life that you're looking to Jesus right now going, God, what is it that you're calling me in faith toward? We are to live in faith. Just take, um, take this time as we wrap up here. Take the time before you, you drink of the cup and eat of the, the body of Christ to say, that thing that you are pressing me on, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lay it before you. I'm going to, before I take this, I'm going to say, God, it's your blood that covers me in this life. It's your, it's in Christ that I live. You are good. You hear my prayers. You know my heart. You have your way with me. Then take of the cup. Then eat of the body. Because when the disciples came to Jesus, as he was walking back into Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree that Jesus cursed withered. And Jesus looked at him and was like, why are you marveling at this? If you have faith in God, you can move this mountain to a new place. If what's standing in front of us, church, whether it's the concern of a totalitarian government rising up, whether it's the concern of a loved one that's encroaching death, whether it is the salvation of a child, whatever mountain of trouble is standing before us, if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, God can move it. So with that, can we pray? Father, you are God. You are able. God, you had a plan to bring Adam a bride before you ever created her. Adam had no idea. He just knew he had a need and you put him to sleep. 
God, we have things that we see rising up in our lives that are huge, that are insurmountable in and of ourselves. But God, we lay our lives before you. We place our lives before you, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would use your word to draw into us greater faith. Lord, the disciples, when they saw what you were doing, they said, increase our faith. God, teach us to pray. Teach us to love your word. God, help us to to grow in this thing that is the Christian life. It is faith in the one who is able. Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone are good. Thank you, God, that you have given us your son. That he lived a perfect life. That he was crucified on a cross. He was dead and he was buried. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rose from the grave. Thank you that you walked among witnesses and you ascended into heaven. Thank you that you are the lion of the tribe of Judah that has conquered sin and death and the devil and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. I pray that our faith would be exercised. I pray that our faith would be used, that you would draw out of us what that is. Spirit of God, descend upon our hearts and lead us in your ways to the praise of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.